Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel, and we will be reading the first eight verses of uh, chapter 24. Now it happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines that it was told him, saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. So he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave, and Saul went in to attend to his needs. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. Then the men of David said to him, This is the day which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as it seems good to you. David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now it had happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. And he said to his man, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. Father, we thank you for this, your word. We pray that as we dig into it, that your word would be doing its work as that two-edged sword uh, piercing to the, uh, the division of soul and spirit and reaching and understanding and revealing the innermost parts of our hearts. I pray, Father, that you would sanctify this, your people, strengthen us in our desires uh, to press into that upward calling that we have in Christ Jesus. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this past week, I read an article quoting the president, and uh, he was encouraging American citizens to get into the Christmas spirit and to be making contributions to the U.S. government to reduce the debt. And I was kind of skeptical there'd be too many people would take up on that. But when I clicked on the link and went to the Treasury website of the U.S. government, I was shocked to see tons of people that are contributing to this reduction of uh, the, the debt. I guess there are a lot of enablers out there who are not willing to say no to the drunken uh, federal government. But anyway, I think the, the biggest single contribution by one individual is three and a half million dollars. So obviously there's people who are really uh, interested in, in giving on that. I actually found that there were three, three funds that you can contribute to. You can contribute to uh, a general undesignated giving fund, or you can, that's just for any use, or you can uh, give to a fund called Gifts for the Reduction of the Public Debt. Uh, just this year, it's received $2.5 million, which is a drop in the bucket, really, on our debt. But. And then there is a conscience fund, and I was intrigued by that one. I dug into it a little bit deeper, and apparently that was set up in 1811, and it was set up for people who were sending money in because their conscience has been bothering them so terribly. I think the smallest amount that was given was uh, nine cents for a person from Massachusetts who wrote a letter and said, my conscience has been bothering me all year long. I reused a three-cent stamp. Anyway, nine cents, I don't know how that figured. Maybe it was... Uh, compensation for interest. I don't know what it was, but the biggest amount that's been given by one individual to the conscience fund was $40,000. So apparently the government realizes that consciences aren't the most lucrative form of <laughs> receiving income. Uh, it's not the biggest um, uh, fund that they've gotten for. 
But it did remind me, as I started reading some of the stories of people, they'd write letters, you know, confession letters, of how they'd been tormented for 40 years, and they finally had to get it off their conscience and send this money in. And uh, consciences can be strange, strange, you want to call it an organ, strange things within us. It's not really an organ. And uh, sometimes they can be tyrants that just harass us for years and years, but they're not consistent. You can find people who can commit an incredibly heinous crime, have no guilt whatsoever, and yet that same person will feel guilty over some other trivial issue. Uh, you can think of the, the, the Sadducees. They didn't seem to show the slightest remorse, the slightest bit of guilt over killing the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet they could not in good conscience take the blood money of Judas into the temple. Very, very odd. So today I want to look at the difference between a bad conscience and a good conscience. And I, I wanted to have some kind of a tangible illustration, and so I'm going to be using throughout this sermon the illustration of a hunting rifle's sights. And uh, this is going to be an old rifle. It's iron sights, okay? And the rear sights are your conscience. And the front sights are the scriptures that you're supposed to line that conscience up with. Now, if you, only, if you, if you do not line up your rear sights, the conscience, with the Word of God, it doesn't matter whether your conscience is troubling you like crazy or it doesn't trouble you at all. It's still a bad conscience. Now, of course, some people don't even have the scriptures in the front of their sights at all. Uh, their consciences do some very weird things. But I want to look at the lives of Saul, then the, the men of David, and David to illustrate what we're talking about uh, here today. And, and basically what I'm going to do, I'm going to give a very brief survey of the passage, kind of mine the data, and then at the end we're going to take that data and we're going to try to apply it in our own lives. So we're going to start with the conscience of Saul. Just as background, let's look first of all at chapter 23 and verse 21. And Saul said, Blessed are you of the Lord, for you have compassion on me. And, and I find those numerous references that we've already been over in, in, in previous chapters rather odd where there's references to Saul serving the Lord. Now, in this passage, he could be pretending to do so, but there are at least some other passages where it seems as if he thinks he is serving the Lord. But the odd thing about it is God says, you shouldn't even be on the throne. Verse 1, he's still on the throne. He's still acting as if he is the representative of the Lord in government while he is fighting against uh, David, the true anointed of God. Now take a look over at chapter 24, and we're going to look at his conscience at work in verses 16 through 22. Now, we'll look at these verses again in connection with a different theme, Lord willing, but look at how his conscience is working. Verse 16, so it was when David had finished speaking these words to Saul that Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He is heart-stricken over what he had almost done. He feels guilty. The pain of his conscience is making him weep. By the way, this is the executive side of the conscience. It makes our consciences hurt, okay? It's like bearing the sword in our lives. Now look at verse 17. Then he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. 
So he finally recognizes what he is doing is wrong, and this sense of right and wrong is the legislative function. It deals with law, okay? It doesn't always kick in, but here it's kicked in. He recognizes what he has done is evil. Uh, Going on in verse 18, And you have shown this day how you have dealt well with me, for when the Lord delivered me into your hand, you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him get away safely? Therefore, may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. So his conscience is showing him the incongruity of what he had been doing as opposed to the character and the conduct of David. Uh, It's the judicial function. He is judging himself as guilty. He is judging David as being innocent. Okay, take a look at verse 20. Now I know indeed that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Therefore, swear now to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. Now, unfortunately, this is not a God-oriented conscience. It is self-preservation. His hand has been caught in the cookie jar and... uh, You know, he's kind of embarrassed. But I want you to notice that despite the fact that he admits that he's obviously guilty, of course he's guilty, he's he's caught, you know, red-handed on this. Notice that he doesn't ask for forgiveness. He doesn't promise restitution. He doesn't promise to step down from the throne and say, you know, God's appointed you to be the king, so I'm going to step down. That would be restitution. He doesn't do that. His only concern at this point is that he not get in trouble with those who are around him who are witnessing what's going on He sees a danger here, and the best way that he can do it is to get David to promise, to say, okay, uh, it's okay, I'm not going to take it out on you. Okay, so his conscience needs release from the sense that he deserves punishment. And shortly we're going to be looking at uh, all three of these again, the, the, the legislative, the judicial, and the executive sides of the conscience. Then verse 22 So David swore to Saul, Saul went home, but David and his men went up uh, to the stronghold. David knows this is just a temporary swing of Saul's conscience, and he's going to go right back eventually to what he's been doing, okay? Uh, There's been no repentance, and so he's going to have his hand right back into the cookie jar again. And he was right. In chapter 26, Saul comes after David again. And so Saul represents a real strange mix of times where his conscience really does seem to be working uh, properly and other times where it's not working properly at all. Um, Despite the fact that he knows God has rejected him from the throne, despite the fact he knows what he is doing is wrong, despite the fact his son Jonathan has rebuked him, and that did temporarily help, uh, Saul can go for long periods without having his conscience bother him at all. So let's take a look at verses 1 through 3. Now it happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines that it was told him, saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. So he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave, and Saul went in to attend to his needs. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. Though his conscience uh, will be awakened later on in the chapter, we've already looked at that, here it does not keep him, his conscience does not keep him from hunting David down with the full intent of killing him. So that's the bad conscience of a man at war with God. Now let's take a look at the misinformed conscience of David's men. These are believers, but believers can have messed up consciences too. 
verse 4. Then the men of David said to him, This is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as it seems good to you. And commentators point out, God never promised that concerning Saul. Uh, in terms of Philistines, yes, but they're misinterpreting providence. Uh, anyway, the verse goes on, David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now, I can certainly understand the logic of Saul's men, I mean, David's men saying this to David. This is self-defense. Surely killing Saul is justifiable here. You've been trying to avoid him. He's trying to kill you. This would be self-defense. So their gun sights were a lot more accurate than Saul's were, but they weren't fine-tuned. David rejects their advice, even though they think they're serving God with their advice. So here's, here's what we're comparing. Saul thinks it's perfectly okay to kill David. And the reason was his conscience was more informed by the opinions of uh, the, the, the day. You know, back in those days, what Saul was doing would have been considered perfectly okay. Yeah, you kill your competitors. That's what all the pagan kings do. And what David's uh, men here are doing is their consciences are also informed, not by the Bible, but by providential opportunity and by pragmatism. But whether it's pragmatism on the front sight or whether it's the opinions of man, your aim is going to be off. And then finally we get to David's conscience. In verse 4, David did not follow their advice. David knew something in the law that they did not know. David's conscience would not permit him to do this because of the theology that we looked at several weeks ago. He recognized no matter how pressing things might be, his conscience must be held captive to the word of God alone. Pragmatism did not drive him. His men's opinions did not drive him. Danger did not drive him. The fact he could get away with it did not drive him. His conscience was held captive to God's word. And uh, he was... Um, he was a man that avoided as a result because he was so tuned to the Word of God, having the sights veer off toward legalism or veering off toward whatever, anarchism, license. You go one way or the other. And I think uh, of Martin Luther when I, when I read this because Martin Luther was in a position that was almost identical to what David was going through. He felt enormous pressure to compromise so that he could survive. And even his friends, some of his friends told him, look, it's much more important that you be alive and be able to continue this movement. Just go ahead. It's a, it's a, it's a compromise. They'll know that you're under pressure here. And he almost succumbed to the pressure because of fear. And he asked, give me another day to think about this. He was wavering. And all that night he prayed and he tried to t tune his heart to the word of God. And it gave him strength to take this answer. He said, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither honest nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. So that's point A. Point B, David was troubled over even the smallest deviations from God's law. He didn't take the attitude, hey, this is a small issue. I guess we can compromise this once. It's not a big deal. Uh, no, he thought any deviation from God's law as being, as being bad. And if you just use the gun sight, you know, you can be off just a little tiny bit and you're not going to hit your elk, are you? Nope, you won't. And that's what Jesus said in Matthew 5. 
Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. He's basically saying you're going to be a lousy shot in the kingdom of heaven if you deviate even slightly from the law of God. You're going to be a lousy shot. And that's why we practice and we practice until we get our guns sighted in, just like Lee does, right? We practice. That's what we need to do with our consciences. We've got to get them tuned and aligned to the law of God. Take a look at verse 5. Now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. You might think David's being legalistic here. You know, what's going on? After all, Saul's going to try to kill you. This is self-preservation. Of course you have the right to kill Saul uh, in this situation. And besides, what's a piece of robe in the big scheme of things? Quit being so legalistic, uh, David. But I don't think he was being legalistic. As Robert Gordon points out in his commentary, back in that day, the tearing of a garment was highly symbolic. And the tearing of this robe was tantamount to saying, I'm going to seize the throne prematurely uh, from Saul. So basically what he was uh, recognizing, all of a sudden, you know, by cutting this robe even, I am, I am making the statement that I'm going to take the throne for myself before God and before the people vote me into office. I'm going to do this unilaterally on my own. And in effect, he was saying revolution is not uh, the way to get to the throne. Only the proper channels of the people voting me into office are going to be sufficient. So he didn't want to run ahead of the Lord, and he realized he was doing that. He's explaining in verse 6. A lot of people interpret verse 6 as, as if it's just completely off topic. He's changing. No, no, no. He's explaining in verse 6 why he couldn't cut the robe. Now, it also explains why he couldn't kill Saul, but even the cutting of the robe he took as an attack against, uh, the, uh, against the throne. And I'm not going to get into all of the debate of whether this is justifiable or not. I think I dealt with that quite clearly a few weeks ago. All I want to point out here is David's conscience was working properly. And I want to briefly comment on the strong term that's used in verse 5 where it says, David's heart troubled him. There are several translations that give a more literal rendering here of his conscience smote him or struck him. It's a very strong word. It's a military word, actually, indicating you're, you've been struck with a sword, or you've been pierced with an arrow. You've been wounded. It's like talking about an inward pain uh, that the conscience is producing within us. And this is what we call the executive function. You know the executive office bears the sword? Well, that's what our, our, our conscience does. It bears the sword against us. It strikes us. It wounds us. It brings pain inside of our hearts. Now, in verse 6, we see David was able to clearly articulate why he was troubled in conscience. This is not a generalized uneasiness that some people have. No, this was very specific. He's saying, I don't have the jurisdiction at this point to be doing this. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. Uh, like we s saw a few weeks ago, David did not have the right to take the throne to himself or to kill Saul, except in two circumstances. One was if he was working for a civil magistrate, and he was certainly willing to do that earlier under Kayla, or when he became a civil magistrate himself. But other than those two circumstances, 
To do it would be engaging in revolution and be engaging in murder. And he did not want to have anything to do with that. And so he explains why his conscience issues were legitimate issues. They were not legalistic. What he's doing is he's realigning the rear sights so that when they're lined up with the Word of God, they're going to strike what they need to strike. And then finally, his conscience helped him to restrain the bad behavior of others. And you can see that in verse 7. So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. He restrained. His conscience restrained the behavior of others. And if you read through Romans 1 through 2, you'll see that Paul talks about that as well. Uh, it talks about us people seeing the consciences of other people at work is one of three ways that God restrains social evils. And so there's a social dimension uh, to the conscience. So that's the brief overview. We're, we're mining the data. We're trying to dig the data out. Now I want to apply it. What difference should this make? I think it makes a lot of difference. The first is you should not treat your conscience as being sufficient by itself. There's very popular for people to say, let your conscience be your guide. That, that, that's really a crazy statement when you think about it uh, because there's a lot of people in the church that have perfectly easy consciences even though they're engaging in many unbiblical things. And yet there's other people who are troubled over things, terribly troubled over things that the Bible says you have perfect liberty over. There, you shouldn't worry about it. It's almost like, you know, they're in the Garden of Eden and they're not eating from the, the forbidden tree. They're eating from these thousands of other trees and they feel guilty because they're enjoying themselves so much, right? <laughs> you know, there must be something wrong with this. I'm just having too much fun. And, uh, and so they have a false sense of guilt. And um, I guess the point of that is that we should not think of our conscience as being the voice of God speaking. That's how some people interpret the conscience. It's God's voice speaking to me. No. Sometimes our consciences tell us terrible things. You know, it's not the voice of God speaking. Now, the Spirit of God will use the conscience as an instrument to bring conviction into our lives, but the conscience itself, unless it is lined up with the Word of God at the end of the, uh, of the rifle, it's not going to be uh, proper. So consciences are useful if they've been regenerated, trained, sanctified by the Spirit, fine-tuned to the front sights of the Scripture. By themselves, they're not reliable. To say, let your conscience guide you is like saying, let your rear sights guide you. Just forget about the front sight. You know, you can, you can have those rear sights go in any, any direction. No, that, that's exactly uh, what it's saying. It's just not going to work. Your conscience needs to be trained by the Word of God. Have I repeated myself enough times? <laughs> your con hey, let me give you an illustration. You know, in Papua New Guinea, when I was in college, uh, we were studying comparative anthropology, which is a bunch of garbage. But anyway, uh, there was this one tribe that uh, it was like it was like almost all but uh, less than a dozen days out of the year, it was mandated that they only engage in homosexual relations. And they felt guilty having relations with their wives on any but, I don't know, it was like less than a dozen days out of the year. So there is a case where their conscience is making them feel guilty and yet it is clearly not the voice of God speaking to them. Not at all. If Saul had trained his conscience to God's word, 
he would have resigned from his office in chapter 13 as soon as he heard the revelation coming out of Samuel's mouth that God had rejected him from being king. And then later on, he had another chance to align his conscience to God's word when the revelation came that David would be his successor. He could have aligned his, heart, his conscience to at least what the God's word said about limited government, but he didn't do that. And, uh, and, and so it was a big failure. He had a conscience. It's working here. It's working in chapter 26, at least to some degree. But even a broken clock strikes the right hour once in a while, doesn't it? Uh, so if you're one of those people who deflects rebukes from the Scripture with the phrase, oh, I'm not convicted about that yet, what you're saying is all I need is the rear sights. I don't need the front sights. Forget it. I'm not convicted. I'm only going to use uh, the rear sights. You're acting exactly like King Saul was acting. And my response would be, well, get convicted. You need to get convicted. This is the word of God. Okay. That's, that's what the response should be. And the only way you're going to hit the target, the way God intended you to hit the target is you readjust those rear sights. So that's the first application. Second application when your conscience is mainly a social conscience, it will let you down. What is a social conscience? A social conscience means a conscience that feels bad when it disappoints people, but not so much when it disappoints God. It may once in a while, but it's primarily oriented to what other people think of me. And the Papua New Guinea illustration I just gave would, would indicate here's a people whose conscience was almost totally geared to what other people thought of them. There are evidences that Saul felt bad in this chapter, and he felt bad in chapter 26, not because of what God thought, but because of what the people who were around him were thinking of his behavior. That's why he felt bad. He adjusted his behavior to keep their approval. And so it was not a God-approved conscience. It was a man-approved conscience, or at least it was a conscience that wanted man's uh, approval. If David had gone along with the suggestions of his buddies here, they would have all totally approved. He wouldn't have felt any condemnation. And so if his conscience had been tuned to what they thought, he would have failed at this critical juncture. And so there's a sense in which I'm, I'm hitting the same point from different angles. The front sight is the Word of God. It's the stationary sight. It's the sight that shouldn't move, you know. It should always be the same. In my growing up years, I had, you know, half and half. Sometimes my conscience would work according to the, the, the Word of God. And there are other times where my conscience would kick in, not because God said what I was doing is wrong. In fact, God's Word explicitly said what I was doing was okay, but because of the pressure from my peers, my conscience felt guilty. Well, that meant it's a broken conscience. If you have a conscience that is geared toward peer approval, you need to memorize Galatians 1.10 and see it in the context of the whole chapter of what's going on in your heart and pray it out before the Lord. This brings us to the next application. We've got to train all three sides of our conscience. Let me just repeat those again. There's the legislative... Just think of the three branches of the federal government. There's the legislative, there's the judicial, there's the executive branch. Okay, Your conscience has those three branches. Legislative branch obviously deals with law, and God says that even unbelievers have the work of the law written on their hearts. And so they have some sense of right and wrong. Second essential element of a conscience is what is known as the judicial element. This is the ability of our conscience to pass judgments on ourselves. 
And also, we have a tendency to pass judgments on other people, right? Now, if he does pass judgment that what my conduct is engaged in is bad, our conscience says, you're guilty. If, at least in my opinion, my conscience is okay in my, uh, what, with what I'm doing, then it passes the judgment of not guilty. Now, we might argue with our conscience. In fact, down through the years, I've argued with my conscience quite a bit of the time and said, no, 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 it's not, it's not wrong, it's not wrong. Uh, but the point is that conscience is going to sit there and it's going to be bringing that judgment. In fact, sometimes it's meaner than snakes. It looks just like the judge that's in your outlines there. Your conscience is coming up to you, you know, just meaner than snakes coming after you. And so we have the legislative branch shows some kind of knowledge of the law, the judicial branch that judges actions. And the third essential element is the executive function. Some people call it the punitive function because it carries out the punishment of pain. Uh, this is why Saul wept. This is why David's heart smote him. It hurt inside. So you have the law, you have the judge, you have the executioner. And I, I should point out, executioner is only half the story because the Scripture says this executive office also gives us a sense of peace, satisfaction, that all is well with God and the world. So it's not only negative. The negative side is the part that gives us a sense of shame, of, of guilt, of feeling awful. And the positive side is the side that says you are right with God and, and with the, the world. Romans 2.15, you can throw that into your outlines. It speaks of this aspect. It speaks of our consciences accusing or excusing. Our consciences condemning or approving. That's the executive function. So law judge, executioner, and some people have added a fourth element. I've, I've just grouped the prophetic element, the predictive element in with the other three, but this is the element that anticipates they're going to kill me. <laughs> they're going to be upset with me, or God's going to uh, get, get you know, me into deep trouble. This is the prophetic. It's looking to the future. Uh, I've grouped them with the three. You can make it a fourth element however you want, but all of those elements need to be retrained. Now, how do you retrain the legislative function? And why would it even need to be retrained? Hasn't God written the work of the law in our hearts? Well, the reason it needs to be retrained, to change the illustration from iron sights to scope, is because sin has fogged up the scope, and you cannot see the crosshairs. There are times where people cannot understand the difference between man's law and God's law. Secondly, Romans 1 indicates that our flesh has this tendency to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We don't like our conscience telling us what to do. You know, it's just, it troubles us. I'd rather be doing something else, but that conscience, man, it just keeps, it keeps hammering on me. And so they suppress that knowledge of the truth. And um, we need to retrain it as well because there's this tendency to become a conscience for other people, to judge other people. And, uh, you know, if you're one of those people who's always imposing your weak conscience upon the consciences of others, you need to retrain your conscience. Let me just uh, put it this way. How are you training your children's conscience? Because you are. One way or another, every parent is training their children's conscience. Are you aligning the conscience of your children to the Word of God? Is that what's at the end of their rifle? Or are you aligning it to your opinions and your prejudices at the end of the rifle. If you're aligning it only to your opinions, your desires, you're training your kids to be a little humanists. See, it's got to be a Godward direction. 
It's only God's word that's the perfect law of liberty. And we've got to have them desire to be holy uh, before the Lord. Everyone's conscience will succumb to some law. And if it isn't God's law automatically, it's going to be shooting off to the right, legalism, or off to the left, uh, license. Uh, just last week, I had someone uh, tell me some philosophical points that demonstrate that uh, rock and jazz uh, and anything other than classical and sacred is uh, sinful. And he was using, you know, five philosophical points. And I was gently trying to pull things back to, okay, where in the law does it say this? He was pulling me back to the five philosophical points. I said, okay, well, where in the Bible are these five philosophical points? They all sound neat and everything, but is it really in the Bible? And, and that's what we, if we start adding our own prejudices, I've got prejudices on music. I don't like everything that my kids listen to. All right, But if I impose my prejudices upon my children as a moral guidance for their lives, what I've in effect done is I have pasted, well, probably crazy glued, you know, another piece on top of the end sight, you know, the, the front sights of the rifle. And that's going to skew everything. If, you're, if you've got, a, you know, another inch, maybe somebody's is a quarter inch, depends on how many prejudices you put in there. We've always got to take things back to the Scripture. Now, I can share with my kids, yeah, I don't really care for that kind of music and hope that they gain my prejudices too. That's okay. But um, that's an entirely different thing. It's a personal preference. Unless you can show it from the Word of God, you should not impose it on even your own family. Only God's law is the perfect law of liberty. And what had happened is Saul had succumbed to man's laws and David's friends had succumbed to man's laws. Second thing we need to retrain is our inner judge. If your inner judge is like that judge in your outlines, constantly looking at you and making you feel uh, awfully uncomfortable, you might need to be retraining that judge. You might need to be asking, hey, who is this judge working for anyway? Is he working for the mafia? Is he working for my peers? That why I succumbed to peer pressure? Who's paying the salary of this judge? You see, our sense of right and wrong, our conscience needs to be beholden more to God than it is uh, to other people. And God's the one who needs to be paying that judge's salary, so to speak. Okay, does that make sense? <clears throat> um, so we need to ask, where do I get my sense of approval or disapproval? Usually we get it from the people that we have the strongest relationship with. So if we don't have a very strong relationship with God, it doesn't bother us when we lose the sense of his presence. If we've got a strong relationship with God, it's going to be so tuned to him that the slightest deviation, the slightest way in which we've offended God instantly troubles us and we run back to the Lord. I want to read something for you uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 4. This is a, a passage very, very much uh, related uh, to this whole subject. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 5, Paul's words. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So he's first of all telling us who he is accountable to. He's a steward, and a steward is a person who's a slave, and that slave is serving the master. That's his primary relationship. Verse 2, moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. 
But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. Paul had learned how to retune his rear sights so that they were lined in to the front sights of the Scripture alone, God's opinion alone. And I find that last phrase very, very interesting. In fact, I do not even judge myself. We, we tend to beat up on ourselves. Well, maybe you guys don't. I tend to beat up on myself. Um, and, and we can doubt our salvation. We can have all kinds of ways in which our conscience lets us down. And when we beat up on ourselves, rather than clinging to the cross and making the hymn Trust and Obey, our theme song, what we do is we go in this downward spiral of depression and self-flagellation and, and absolute depression. We get so discouraged, we beat up on ourselves. No, we need to learn not to even allow ourselves to be the judges, only God. So let me repeat that verse. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I know of, of nothing against myself, yet I'm not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. He had trained the legislative function of the conscience to align itself to the Bible, the whole Bible, nothing but the Bible. He had trained his judicial side to get its information from the Bible, the whole Bible, nothing but the Bible. And where did he get his sense of approval? What's going to happen in the future? What am, I, what am I hoping for in the future? It's God's well done. Now, good and faithful servant, it's not man's well done. So even his executive side and the prophetic side is being trained to look uh, to the Lord. If we do not have the fear of God, it is guaranteed we're going to start living in terms of the fear of man. And the conscience was built to have fear. Or, when we're doing right, to not have fear. It's of the very nature to fear something. Now, the fear of man can take many, many different turns. If we think we're pretty good, the fear of man, which is a, come, flows out of pride, is going to start making us arrogant and thinking we're better than other people, being judgmental of other people. During the days that we're thinking really down about ourselves because we realize what worms we really are, then we're going to be doing the exact opposite. We're going to be thinking, ah, oh, they're condemning me, nobody loves me, I'm going to eat some worms. You know, it's just you feel terrible about yourself. And so what happens is we vacillate between overconfidence and loss of confidence, self-esteem, loss of self-esteem, security, insecurity, seeking the limelight, fearing the limelight, depending on what we think of ourselves. And so to align this judicial side of the conscience, what we've got to do is completely clear our hearts of the fear of man and replace it with the fear of God. And there's many tools you can use to do that. One of the tools I really recommend is really processing through, thinking through the book, When People Are Big and God Is Small by Ed Welch. Excellent book, excellent book. Now, there's a lot more we could say about the conscience, but there's just one last application I want to make this morning. Don't allow your conscience to be hardened. Uh, some people think they've got a great conscience because it never bothers them. <laughs> Saul's conscience never bothered him, or rarely, very rarely bothered him. Elton Trueblood once said, the good conscience is an invention of the devil. 
That's overstatement. You know, you could take it in the wrong way as being theologically incorrect. But I think what he is saying is if you do sin, and yet you have a good conscience week in, month in, month out, probably that good conscience is an invention of the devil. Okay? Because the conscience is designed to instantaneously realign us back to the Lord God, not to put us in misery for a long time, but to realign us to the Lord very, very quickly. Otherwise, our conscience, uh, is, if it's razor sharp, it's going to be doing very quickly the process of going to the cross and ushering us into the joy of the Lord. Let me, let me read you a scripture from Proverbs. Proverbs 30, verse 20 says, This is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wickedness. Okay, because her sin had become a lifestyle to her, she came to the place, she had no shame, she had no sense of doing wrong. She thinks everything's okay. This is exactly where Saul was at. And as I read the, the news nowadays, and you find these people who come out of the closet and have become proud of what used to be an abomination in America. Their consciences have become seared. They have lost the blessing of that executive office which brings pain into us. And you might think, that's a little bit strange to think of pain as a blessing, but it is. Pain is an incredible blessing. If you were without pain in your fingers and your toes, you would do irreparable damage to your body and you would die a whole lot younger. This is exactly what happens to lepers. The reason their bodies fall apart is because they don't have pain and they're doing stupid things. I was reading this one article by a doctor who dealt with lepers and leper colony, and he said he watched this kid one time opening a, a rusty stiff lock with a key. And he couldn't do it himself. The kid was able to open it, but the kid didn't realize he had taken off the flesh and part of the bone of his finger. He did not even realize it. So because he had no feeling, he was doing stupid things. It is not a cool thing to have a conscience that has no feelings. Uh, in fact, this is exactly what Sigmund Freud uh, does. He thought, saw the conscience as being the bad thing. That's the bad guy. We need to harden the conscience so it's not troubling us so much. And I know people right here in Omaha, several people who have shown me the homework that the psychiatrist has given to them. This homework is abominable. This homework was doing all kinds of things deliberately trying to deaden the conscience so it cannot feel anymore. These psychiatrists are turning people into spiritual lepers. So it's a, it's a horrible thing. Now I want to conclude by talking about the blessing that the conscience can bring. Now obviously pain is a blessing. You know, when your spiritual finger is touching a spiritual hot stove... You want it to instantly come back. Otherwise, it'll be burnt to a crisp, right? And you want the same thing with your conscience. It is an incredible blessing where the, your conscience is so sensitive, it's not smoking. Your finger's not on the stove smoking. Instantly, you bring it back and no damage is done. Because why? You've gone to the cross of Christ. You've returned instantly to Him and you're ushered instantly into joy. There's no need to be in the doghouse uh, for hour after hour instantly you can be restored in the joy of the Lord. And to walk in the joy of the Lord as David did with a free conscience gives us the strength to do the hardest things. This is why Paul said, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. He worked at it. It takes work, hard work, to have a good conscience like David did. 
but the work is worth it. That same conscience will fill us with a sense of peace, approval, and satisfaction. Listen to what St. Augustine said. He said, a good conscience is the palace of Christ, the temple of the Holy Ghost, the paradise of delight, the standing Sabbath of the saints. In other words, it's intended to be our blessing. Do not ever treat your conscience as being the enemy. The iron sights on your gun, yes, they may need to be adjusted. In fact, unlike a lot of uh, rifles, they need to be adjusted constantly, it seems like. But those sights are a blessing indeed. Let me read that quote from Augustine again. And we can pray that this description of a good conscience would become true of your consciences. A good conscience is the palace of Christ, the temple of the Holy Ghost, the paradise of delight, the standing Sabbath of the saints. May it be so of us. Amen. Father God, we thank and bless you for the gift of the conscience. And we know that it has been affected negatively by the fall of Adam and Eve into sin. And even by our own behaviors, it can very easily become deadened and seared. And I pray, Father, if there are any seared consciences here, that you would put your finger there and bring your healing and soften consciences and enable them to be tuned not uh, to what others think or our own opinions, but tuned to the word uh, that you have given to us in the scriptures. We love you. It is our desire to love you more. Uh, we desire, Father, that our consciences would ever, uh, would constantly be uh, more fine-tuned to you so that we would be driven to you on a moment-by-moment, day-by-day basis, walking in the Spirit, walking in the joy and the strength that flows from your throne. And so we pray this upon this congregation in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah.